angry feelings are disagreeable. I'm putting you on warning. Just who the hell do you think you people are? They will be met with fire and fury. They make you act and look as well as feel unhappy. Our very way of life. Look at the fear. Are under threat from extremists. I am your voice. Hello, this is Anger Management with Nick Clegg, the podcast that looks at the issue of anger. Do we have too much anger? I think we do. I think we need more reason and less anger. I think that would uh, suit us all very well. Uh, And this week I have uh, a guest that I've been much looking forward to this episode because my guest is the mother of the House of Commons, no less, Harriet Harman, who's been an MP for 36 years, which is an extraordinary achievement. I only managed 12. Good morning. Good morning. It's lovely to to have you here. So let's start, in a sense, with the with the with the issue of the day. Are you an angry person? Well, I hadn't asked myself that question until you kindly invited me <laughs> on this podcast, and I think the answer is yes. I am here as fuming from South London because I don't think I'm entitled to be what the opposite of anger is, which is complacent, accepting. There's too much wrong with the world. There's too much unfairness and injustice. And I don't want to be one of those people who just thinks, yeah, I'm chilled about that. And I think there's a difference between anger and nastiness. I think anger as a spur to determination for change is a thoroughly positive thing. And it's a force for progress. Um, we, We had to be angry about apartheid. We had to be angry about Clause 28 and homophobia. We had to be angry about the toll taken of domestic violence. Otherwise, we'd just all put our feet up Mm. and be fine about it. But I think that's different from being bitter and twisted, or at least I try not to be bitter and twisted because actually that's kind of quite wearing on the person. Too Mm. much anger can Mm. be debilitating. The right amount of anger is motivating. And I think for the next generation... So a smidgen of anger helps. I think so. And I think if I look at the next generation, if they're all, yeah, everything's fine, I'm not angry, I'm quite (laughs) rational, it's like don't be rational, you're not going to do anything with your life. Mm. You've got to be looking at what is wrong, looking at the mountains and climbing them. Right. Um, That's a stirring justification for anger. (laughs) And and so looking back on your own life, and particularly if I may just go right back to sort of the beginning, as far as your political, uh, your path into politics is concerned, was anger for you when, so you first entered Parliament in 1982. So I, I suppose you're your passion for politics must have what brewed in the 70s in particular. Was it was anger a motivation, both an emotional and political motivation at the time? Well, I think it started before that. And it wasn't a passion for politics, which is the process for doing stuff. It was anger about the situation, the unfairness. And I think if you cast your mind back, well, you know, it's before your time. But I was born in 1950 and it was Utterly socially conservative, hierarchical, racist. You know, men were regarded as um, superior to women. Women were subordinated. And the whole women's movement, together with the anti-racist movement and the gay rights movement, we were like, no, this is not all right. This is not all right and we're not going to put up with it. And we tripped over it in our daily lives and 
I mean, when I was applying for jobs, it was before the Sex Discrimination Act and I was applying to be a lawyer in the Law Society Gazette where you looked to apply for your articles of Mm. clerkship, which is now known as trainee solicitor. They would say the right man for the job is. And you couldn't even apply for jobs. And my sister, who was applying at the same time, she rang up one firm because she knew they had a woman um, in the firm and therefore thought she would be able to apply for this job. And they said, no, you can't apply. And she said... Why not? And they said, well, because you're a woman. And she said, but you've already got a woman. And they said, yeah, well, that's the point. You'd only fight. And the idea was, yeah, the idea was that women were rivals in pursuit of the best husband because our real ambition was to get a good husband. And that's how we were defined. And the women's movement said, we are going to be on an equal footing. Mm. We're going to be partners Mm. with our Mm. husbands. We're not going to be inferior. But my mother you know, who'd qualified... Who I'd met, who, Indeed, your wonderful mother, yes, who, who was yes. a great fan of Joe Grimmond and was still... a liberal... Yes, she came to... She, you'd be amused. You might, she, she came with what must have been one of your sisters uh, to a... where Ken your Clark book and, thing. Yes, yes, Ken Clark did. and I were doing a joint sort of flogging our respective books at a, at a book festival in London. Anyway, it was she, lovely well, to meet her, She's 99 and yeah. still hope, she still has hope for her party, which is um, <laughs> well, the Lib Dems. One, one, well, hope runs eternal. I mean, um, but just on that, having met very briefly, I mean, you obviously come from a family of very strong women. Um, it, what, so were you conscious of the fact, because you, you, you're one of four sisters, is that right? Yeah, but there was no such concept as no? strong women. That would have been a complete right. oxymoron in those days. Right. And my mother had qualified as a bad Barrister. But once she'd achieved the higher ambition of marrying my father, literally her wig and gown were in our dressing mm. up box. Because the most important thing was to get married and once you'd achieved that lofty ambition, to serve and support your husband. And I well remember coming back to univers- from university one time and my mother had started to train again as a solicitor because we'd all left school and everything. My dad was retired and he was sitting at the dining t- at, the, at the table uh, waiting for my mum who was cooking his breakfast, reading the papers she was cooking kippers so there was this terrible smell emanating but she was also cooking his supper because she would have to have the supper on the table even though he was retired and that was curry so there was this awful smell, the curry and the kippers but also there was a law book propped on the back of the cooker And my dad was sitting there at the table reading the paper and there she was. And I thought, I'm not going to do this. And actually there were women in all walks of life up and down the country. Did you say something to your mum and dad at the time? Not really, because, I mean, we didn't really talk between the generations in the way that they do now. We spent most of our time trying to not talk to our parents. (laughs) And, you know, we were going to lead very different lives from them. And there were women, you know, up in mining communities who would be ironing the newspaper for the husband for Mm. when he came home, not just keeping his slippers warm and making sure his supper was ready, but having ironed the newspaper. And the idea was when a man said something, it was more likely to be true, more important than what a woman said. Mm. And this idea that women could be on an equal footing and we shouldn't accept this subordination... So were there any any role models for you at the time, as as you became increasingly, as you described very well and vividly so angry with a sort of patriarchy which was just an unquestioning part of the sort of social fabric of British life were, were there then were there then role models that you were inspired by at the time no there was no role models but there was a mighty peer group the women's movement right said, we're not going to be rivals for the best husband. We're going to be united in a sisterhood to change things Mm. and to put ourselves on an equal footing. So it was literally 
a peer group that you would all work together. Mm. And that's why it was so difficult for me when I found myself in the House of Commons hoping to be part of a monstrous regiment of young feminist women getting in there to change everything, to find that because Labour did so badly in the 1983 election, I was literally the only yeah. young I feminist I read somewhere, I think it was 97% there. men at the time. And yeah. there, were more, there were more MPs called John than there were female MPs in that first yes. parliament. But can I just, just before we sort of move chronologically on, um, you've talked obviously about your anger about um, g- gender injustice at the time and so on. Um, but was it, you also came from a, I mean, you were at St Paul's Girls' School, you were kind of a well-to-do family, sort of, middle, I don't know how you characterise upper middle class family. Was there also a sort of social reaction to that or was it was it more through the prism of the injustices that you saw around you about the place of women in society? Well, I think it was generalised. It was to do, as I said, with race, with homophobia, with misogyny, but also very strongly about socioeconomic injustice, you know, the class system. I mean, remember that... Um, him, all things bright and beautiful, had the rich man at his castle, the poor man at the gate, and that was all part of everything being bright and beautiful, everybody in their ordered place. And it was about challenging that world Yeah, but you came from a very privileged part of that ordered place. And so how... How aware were you of that, and and did that did that generate guilt as well as anger? What was the what was the sort of what was the mix of emotions? It just it, not guilt, no, just a sense that actually something had to be done about all of this. That it was like unfairness that 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 unfairness should be challenged, or else you're complicit with it, really. And how were we going to lead our lives? We were going to either put up with it, and then you're complicit with it and colluding, or you get out there and you change things. So when I trained to be a lawyer and was in this awful Westminster firm, you know, acting for landlords and, you know, employers who were oppressing the workers and landlords who were chucking out tenants. I went straight from that to work in a law centre to support trade union branches, tenants associations, people who couldn't pay for for lawyers. And that had a big impact on you. So I had my professional middle class Mm -hmm. degree and my training, my legal training, but I wanted to use that as part of changing the world. And then, of course, I was part of the Labour Party, which was the political wing of the women's movement and all these progressive movements. It might have been that, but, of course, you were in a in a parliamentary party at the time which wasn't remotely diverse, and nor, the, nor was Parliament as a whole, across all parties, as you just said. So what was it like in that first Parliament when you were such... You know, there were so few women, and, and I remember you... I heard you, I think, speak before, sort of quite powerfully about how you felt quite... Sort of unhappy and 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 unsettled by that early experience in Parliament. What was it like? And did and did and crucially, did that uh, did that engender a different kind of anger about the way politics was being done? Well, I think we already had the anger for how politics was being done, which was why we decided that loads of us had to get into the House of Commons. So we didn't get angry in the House of Commons. We got into the House of Commons in order to change it because we were angry that it was unrepresentative and women's voices weren't heard. But it wasn't as if, once I'd got in with our very good women's movement argument completely coherent about how things need to change and it needs to be representative, that people didn't go, oh, that's such a good idea. <laughs> Half women in the House of Commons, of course you're right. Three um, percent women in the House of Commons. No, that's not nearly enough. They regarded it as a personal attack on them and hit back. So but they on all were sides, angry right? with me. So, but yes. all the people on your own side as well. Yes, but, yeah. it's like. What are you doing? You've just arrived and you're starting to say everything's wrong with the House of Commons and our agenda is all wrong. 
just keep your head down for the mm. first 10 years, mm. learn the ropes, you know, don't you start speaking out like that. And and actually, it was a real fight. And when we were further on down the line, arguing for more women MPs and got to the point of all women shortlists, the anger really built up in the Labour Party. We tried everything to, to get more women in Parliament in the party of women and equality, which is what the Labour Party felt it was. But we still only had men Labour MPs. And so we did all women shortlists. And the men who'd wanted to be those continuation of uh, male Labour MPs were absolutely furious. And there was one man who I met up at, met at conference and he said, I've, I've moved my wife and my children to this godforsaken dump of a place and now the MP is starting to look really unwell and yet you, I'm not even able to stand because of you. You've ruined my life. So that was just... Literally, there was mm. personal, because I was there in the House of Commons mm. at, in, as part of this argument, and I was the nearest mm. one, for they were angry with me. I was making a reasonable argument mm. for change of the agenda and the way we do our politics and everything else. And there was such a pushback and yeah, a no, fight no, no, back I, and I, a I, backlash. It's not on this issue. I certainly relate to the uh, innate conservatism of that place. It's... It, Incredibly difficult to change. And anything. really, every institution is yeah, hard possibly. to change. And yeah. there was women in academia. There was women in yeah. unions. There was but then women in '97, in... of course, you had that uh, that remember everyone will remember that photograph uh, immediately dubbed by the tabloids as Blair's babes and stuff. And what what did that feel like? And that was absolutely incredible. And mm. literally, there were women at the checkouts in supermarkets saying, "We've seen you all in there. Get in there." <laughs> I mean, it was absolutely incredible because it completely changed how women perceived politics is that suddenly there was women like them from all regions of the country, from Scotland and from Wales, all ages, mm. all in our brightly coloured jackets so mm. that we were going to be seen and we were going to be heard. No, I remember and, myself, it was, it was very But it was so, yeah. Yeah. what was so disappointing is because Tony Blair came to the photo call, which we hadn't invited him to the photo call because we oh, wanted... Oh, he gate-crashed it. Yes, he did because ah. we wanted it to be women together right. in... In the in Parliament, speaking up for other women. So we told Number Ten that we were going to have this photo call, and they said, "Oh, that's a great idea. The Prime Minister will be along, etc." And it's like quite difficult to say to the Prime Minister, yes. who's just delivered a landslide, yes. "Don't come. We don't want you in the picture." Yes. Well, I did advance the notion that this was about women's empowerment, and therefore you shouldn't come. But it didn't really find any favour with Number Ten. Not surprisingly, so he turned up, and it turned it from being about women strong together into us all being like the Prime Minister's fan club. Mm. And just, you know, and then, of course, the press piled in. We were Blair's babes. Mm. And the travesty, when you think of the Mo Molans, the Claire Shorts, the idea that we were all branded babes, mm. that was part of the backlash of a totally male-dominated press mm. who did not want women, you know, who didn't know their place. Mm. It was all about knowing your place, mm. and we were about changing that place. Mm. So it was really a big Can I just moment. Listen to you speak. Do, do you think your generation of feminists and campaigners, and you talk, and you talk very eloquently about why anger, in your view, is a sort of positive um, 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 source of motivation? Do you see the women's movement these days? I mean, the, the, there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of talk about young women now expressing their feminism in a different way or that the, 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 the kind of emotional 
anger in the sort of first wave of feminism has now given way to something slightly sort of different in tone. Do you see that? Oh, no. I mean, look at the Me Too movement. Yeah. Look at the, the BBC women protesting. Mm. Look at them. Oh, no, no. And of course they feel angry and quite rightly. So yeah. no, no, I'm not saying that. But, but they're but... demanding change as yes, well. Yes, yes. And they're actually exposing wrongdoing. Yeah, yeah, no, they're actually... Yeah doing a whole load of things and it's it's fantastic no no i'm not, I'm not saying it's, it is mm. fantastic of course it's fantastic and of course the anger is great i just the, the, the is the is the tone different is the way they're doing it different is it is it a I don't know, maybe it's because your social media, just, it's just much, it, it, maybe it's just done in a different way these days. But it's I think the, the, same the basic principles that it's got to be collective, that women have got to support each other and that we're not going to put up with it until we're equal are absolutely there. Mm. And I think that, yeah, no, it's, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a continuum um, and it has kind of moments like the Me Too is definitely a moment and mm. the point is not just to be angry but to make sure that there are proper complaints procedures, that there's anonymity for victims, that complaints are taken seriously, that there's proper codes of conduct and so that we get change as a result of it. And as for the gender pay gap, I mean, honestly, bonuses, bonuses just seem to be a way of sloshing money to men in a way which is totally offensive to women. I mean, I don't know why anybody does bonuses. They're just like toxically discriminatory and now it's all exposed I'm glad to say mm. and that was in our 2010 Equality Act which was the last act of the Labour government before we got booted out but actually to their credit the Tories have actually implemented it now and um, that's well, going to be there's, big. There's five years between that by the way anyway there's a, there's a, which I can, <laughs> I can talk about at greater length on a different occasion but they, it's, it's a, you're quite right it's good that the lid has now been lifted on the pay I and mean, it'll be very interesting to see next year when these companies have to republish. Whether it's changed, because it's a time, benchmark. This time it's this, exactly. This time it's the kind of, how do you put it, the sort of photo of the imbalance and the in inequality and the injustice. It's but a if benchmark. They, if they don't the make question progress, is if yeah, this changed. Exactly, but, exactly. I mean, when you talk about the gap, I mean, we introduced in the Labour government in 1970 the Equal Pay Act. It wasn't implemented until 1975. Clearly you have to spend ages on women's equality tippy-toeing round, allowing people to adjust themselves to tackling decades and did centuries of entrenched discrimination so um, but you know it feels like a good moment on equal pay Harriet Harman um, a little question I ask all my guests if you were stuck in a lift who would you want to be stuck in a lift with and why? Well, I'm going to ignore my first thought, which is a lift engineer, in order to t tackle my practical, claustrophobia. Practical, yeah. <laughs> Help me open do you, that. Do you suffer from claustrophobia? Well, I would do if I was stuck yeah, in a lift. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I think probably... Uh, David Cameron for him to like have enough time to apologise for inflicting the flipping referendum on us and sending the country off the edge of a cliff. How long would that conversation last, do you think? I mean... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think he'd say to you? I don't know. I think perhaps if it's something that bad, it's quite difficult to live with yourself if you admit it. So I don't know. Perhaps he... I don't know. You'll have to have him on your podcast and ask him. Trap him in the studio. Yes, there's an idea. Um, I wonder. I wonder. No, I, I think, he, I think he, he believes he had no choice but to hold the reference. It's not a view I share and I doubt you do either. There was but... an alternative because he could have like led and crushed the backbenchers who were arguing for oh. it and he could have worked harder in the constituencies so he didn't have to feel that UKIP was 
going to But can I just ask you, I, mean, I, I think it was I, a shortcut, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a political shortcut. No, no, shortcut. I, think, I think he was absolutely convinced it was going to be one. And also hoping so. that... Yeah. You would be in coalition and to you wouldn't let him, him do it. it. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I that's, you know, sure that, you can't ever put in your manifesto something you really hope you won't have to do. Uh, well, that's, yes, well, that's another subject. But um, can I, I don't want to bring too much party politics in here, but would you not also want to ask Jeremy Corbyn, on, since you want to invite David Cameron, you know, why did he not do more during the referendum? It was such a, such a narrow margin in the end. We'll come back to this later, but since you raise it, what, 650,000 votes in it? Don't, do you have a feeling if he'd put more sort of oomph into the referendum, he might have persuaded a few thousand extra people to vote the right way? Or the, on the Remain side, at least? Well, it wasn't Jeremy Corbyn's idea to have the referendum, to be fair. So that's the point. But if you have a referendum, you have, Cameron, to pick a choo- you have to yeah. choose a side and you have to yeah. sort of go for it. And it was dismaying that there were lots of people on whose doors I knocked, where I would be on the doorstep with my Labour rose. In, in your own constituency? Oh, well, all around. Because your constituency um, was heavily Remain, wasn't it? Yeah, it yeah. was, overwhelmingly Remain. Uh, but but I'd turn up on the doorstep in various places and I'd have my big Labour rosette on one side and my Labour in on the other side. And people would look and they'd say, oh, I thought we were far out. <laughs> and it'd be, oh, my word, if, if people don't know. And I think that the thing about leadership... Well, because basically... You can't do nuance when it's a binary That's decision. Right. You cannot do nuance. And leadership is not about exploring the complexities. It's like, OK, we're going to be on this side. And but why does that not happen? And I think that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was more nuanced about it. And that led people to be... And some of the things that he said were right about the problems of the EU, but it was not the moment to say them because we were actually needing people to say, look, if you're Labour... Let's all vote in because a lot of people were uncertain about it and they do look to the party that they always vote for for a lead. And, of course, if you lose by a whisker, then actually um, it is always very frustrating and, and you look back. But I was on the bus, the Remain bus, with David Cameron, as you were. No, I wasn't. No, no, oh, I, weren't you? No, I played, no, no, I played no role in the. No, 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 I didn't. But, oh, anyway, right. but you were, yes. Well, I was on the Remain bus. But not, not the one with the 350 million. No, no, the other one. Yeah. Yes. No, the, good, no. the good one. Yes, yes, I was on <laughs> the good bus. <laughs> well, um, uh, so I was on this bus. And every time we got off the bus, you know, we would meet people who would be saying, we're going to vote out. And I could just sense that the Prime Minister and his team, they had a sort of belief that it was going to be fine. And somehow people were saying, no, it's not going to be OK. Even farmers and we'd be saying, who do you think you're going to sell your milk to? You won't be able to sell it to France. Don't you think you're going to be done for by all this imports of American uh, beef stuffed with antibiotics and chlorine washed chickens? Well, we're still voting uh, leave. And-, and there was a lot of anger in that, wasn't there? The, 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 there was a lot of general anger with the status quo, which I guess must have led a lot of people to vote for Brexit because that was a way of kicking the status quo. And well, is except that, is that what was clear to me on going around on that Remain bus is that what seemed to me absolutely evidently people voting against their own economic self-interest was not the issue. There was a cultural thing mm. about not being told what to do by London. Mm. You know, all the elites are telling us that to do this. Well, we're going to put two fingers up mm. to them. All this stuff about we don't want to hear from experts. You're just against it. Mm. And so, yeah, but I think it was, yeah, it was very exasperating that it was so 
so narrow. And now it's just very, very, very difficult and very worrying. And, you know, I do worry that the places, some of the places that voted leave are going to be the ones that are going to be hardest hit. You know, London is very resilient. Actually, probably London's economy you know, has got more resilience than mm. anywhere but, but, in the country. Yeah. So the irony is London, who is the great Remain stronghold, mm. you know, along with some of the other cities, will will be able to get through it. And it's the and most your, your marginalised. Consti- your constituency was heavily... Re- what was the percentage? Yeah, uh, 70%. 70%. A massive... Uh, yeah. So, so just thinking forward, so to, in a few months you're going to have to decide whether you're going to join <laughs> Liam Fox and Boris Johnson and the others in the lobbies to support the government's proposed deal or outline deal or or vote against it and and face the wrath of those who say you should you know you should be implementing the referendum notwithstanding your own doubts um i'm I'm going to ask you but i suspect you're not going to give me a a, a definitive answer of what you think you're going to do but can i just in terms of your own constituency and though all of those people many of them labor voters who hope that by hook or by crook labor will um, sort of pull back from the brink and prevent this government from sort of pushing its version of Brexit. What will happen to those folk in your constituency if they see you and other Labour MPs in the end support what is in effect a Tory Brexit? I mean, don't you think that will instill a great deal of anger? Well, I think the problem is conflicting mandates. Sure. And actually, um, my constituents one of the things that they want to see is Labour being coherent, not being divided, not arguing amongst themselves, looking solid and clear and being, well, just being coherent and looking like we're a party of government. So actually, divisions within the party, they don't like at all. And the difficulty is, is that we have got conflicting mandates because, you know, I've got a Remain constituency, something like seven out of 10 Labour MPs have got constituencies voting leave. Even those of us who've got Remain constituencies, there is a referendum result which is there, which is not something that you can just ignore. So I think that's why actually mixing up a referendum with a representative democracy is a is a thoroughly difficult thing. And I argue a lot with friends of mine who are saying, you've got to vote every against this, against that, against the other, um, and then say, I'm not pro-European enough. I mean, I'm not any less pro-European than anybody. Uh, but actually, it's a question of how we get through from where we are. We are in opposition. We're not in government. But if and you're in opposition, you know, we I, I, lost I, the referendum sure, sure, as well as the sure, general election. Sure. So it, it's not. No, but just to bring it back to the theme, if, if I may, just to this part, because of course, of course, I have different mandates and parties all have different um, sort of schools of thought and all that kind of stuff, and we're in a very difficult situation, so on, which we both of us hope we're not. But we are where we are. I get my question really is: I hear, uh, and you particularly hear this in the sort of right wing press, increasingly almost intimidatory suggestions that unless the referendum, or rather, let's be precise, their particular interpretation of the referendum is pursued, there will be violence on the streets, demonstrations, civil unrest and so on. I just want to sort of push you a bit on the reverse, which I have personally, as someone outside politics now and certainly outside the Labour Party, I think is the real strategic risk for Labour, is that if you defy your own constituency and all those youngsters at Glastonbury and all those people who believe that Jeremy Corbyn will deliver the promised land, including avoiding or slipping the noose of this hard Tory-designed Brexit. If, notwithstanding all of that, the Labour Party basically supports a Tory Brexit, are, I just, are you worried about the anger that that will then el- elicit amongst a lot of 
Labour, particularly younger pro-European supporters. Um, and of course that will cause difficulties elsewhere. It always does. That's what you have to choose. You have to do one or the other. But I think the first point is to worry about people's standard of living and prosperity and to try and do the very best we can to but by not that, have I... economic disaster. I think, of course, there are important political considerations, but the first consideration must be to stop the economy going over the edge mm. of a cliff and trying to get the very best deal. And, of course, we don't know what the deal is. It's going to be less good than what we've got at the moment. I mean, that's why but if I that's was for Remain. But if that's your benchmark, then surely it's a sort of no-brainer. You can't possibly vote for any version of the government's increasingly confusing versions of Brexit because they're all economically damaging. So, I mean... Well, let's see what they come up with. You know, we've got to but you don't, see you, what... But you I don't, don't, you don't believe you, yeah, but, that they're going to no, of course not. come up with anything that's... Well, it depends what, of course, our European partners are prepared to let us do. But, I mean, it's just... You know, it's very, very worrying. And I think in all my time I've been in Parliament, I can't remember, I think it was actually Kenneth Clark who said no government has got a mandate to make its people worse off, mm. full stop. And I think that that is, you know, mm. and the irrevocability of it. It's not like a general election mm. where you can make a horrendous error no, I, and then sort it out next time. You know, I, I hear what you say. That the bit. Uh, listen, we probably should move on because I can, I can, I can get a little bit fixated on this issue. But I, what I just find quite difficult to follow is when people say to folk like me, "Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We don't want to make the country poorer. We don't want to betray the young. Seventy percent of them voted for. I don't want to obviously turn my back on my constituency. Oh, but I'm keeping an open mind. I mean, I just." There is just no well, remote. There is just no remote chance that the yeah. Conservatives are going to design a Brexit, which is it's going to meet about, any of the things you've just said to me are important to you. So. Yeah, but it's not about keeping an open mind. It's about trying to find our way forward in circumstances that we find ourselves yeah. in, having lost an election and lost a referendum. Yeah. The next step is not the easy just no, no. doing. But it you one. have to choose. You have to. Oh, no, I mean, we I'm assuming the Labour Party is not going to abstain. We right? will have to choose, and we will have to see what actually comes before us when we choose, yeah. and we will also need to work together as much as possible across the House but also sure. within the Labour Party because both sides yeah. are, you know, there's a continuum of opinion within both sides that I've never seen yeah. the like of before. No, no, absolutely. absolutely no, no, it's, I, I don't envy you. But just before we move on from this, just there's no risk, is there, that the Labour Party will just find it so agonising and the internal split so great that it sort of just sits on its hands and abstains. There's no risk of that. You can't abstain on such an enormous issue when confronted with the deal or the outline deal that the government will present to Parliament towards the end of the year. That's not a... Well, I would think that that was very unlikely. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. never been a great abstainer. No, 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 I've no, always no. thought that actually I you're there to choose, yeah. tortuous though these decisions often are. So, Harriet, you and I, I remember, it was quite a dramatic moment. You and I uh, ended up, I think it was in Ed Miliband's office, in the dead of night, working on what should be the cross-party response to... Over a pizza. Over a pizza. And uh, that's right. And I rang poor old Oliver, Oliver Letwin and hauled him out of... This is Leveson, yeah. Yes, Leveson, exactly. And he, he turned up in, I remember, bright mustard yellow corduroys. And ever since then, David Cameron called it the night of the mustard corduroys. Um <laughs> Anyway, we we worked on Leveson together. There was all that that was on the wake of the hacking scandal and how we should respond and so on. And I'm very disappointed, as you no doubt are now, that the government has basically 
decided to um, drop all of that. But do you think that the relationship between politicians and the press and the advent of social media and that sort of churning 24-hour feeling and everyone can, you know, the press of a button, express their opinion and express their rage, do you think that has increased the sort of brittle, kind of angry climate or tone which seems to prevail at the moment? Well, I think it's fragmented things in a way which is actually quite helpful because in the olden days when I first was in the House of Commons in 1982, there was the press gallery. There was no broadcasting, uh, radio or television and um, no tweeting or people blogging from the House of Commons and therefore there was this absolute prism through which politics was seen and it was very reactionary and now people can speak with their own voices on their own Twitter, on their Facebook and therefore I think it's much more democratic and the stranglehold of the Murdoch-owned media mm. is is broken down by that. So I think there's a lot to be said against what's happening on social media, death threats, misogynist abuse, racist well, intimidation. Threats, all MPs seem to receive death threats uh, these days. I, I certainly did when I was in Parliament. Did you, did you hear of that when you first came to Parliament? Was that a... Well, I received a, a death threat um, from somebody actually I'd previously acted for as a solicitor and became what was Back described as a, yeah. f a fixated individual. But I felt that I shouldn't report it to the police because the police had more to be doing with to be looking after my constituencies and I shouldn't prioritise myself. Now you would. Whereas now you would, right? Actually, now I take a very different view, which is basically I was elected by my constituents they have a right for me to go into the House of Commons and speak for them and represent them untrammeled. And it's an interference with democracy for somebody to say, because you voted in this way or because you've got the temerity to speak rather than being stuck at the kitchen sink, you're going to be intimidated and threatened. And I see now the abuse that is particularly and the threats that are levelled against younger women MPs or those um, conservatives who vote against uh, their whip on Brexit. That is a challenge to democracy and we should delegitimise that and not regard it as a sign of weakness when people call in the police, is that what they're doing is challenging those people who are interfering with democracy. So I'm, you know, I'm dismayed that um, Nicky Morgan's going to be giving evidence mm -hmm. in court against a mm -hmm. death threat. Anna Soubry had mm -hmm. death threats uh, for how she voted. Mm -hmm. Luciana Berger, somebody's had to go to prison because of anti-Semitic mm -hmm. violent threats against her. Rosie Cooper. I mean, th this is that nobody should look over their shoulder when they have been elected to mm. be an MP. They should be able to walk around in their constituency and meet and greet their constituents and listen to them without looking over mm. their shoulder. They should be able to go through sure. the division lobby, not thinking I'm going to get a pile of death threats and on my staff as well. Do you think there's any, and it's of course not intended, it never would be, but do you think there's any unintended um, effect between the kind of certainly on the Brexit issue right now, almost sort of semi-permanent hysteria in parts of the right-wing press about, you know, saboteurs, traitors and so on and so forth. Do you think there's any link between that and this very kind of extreme intimidatory behaviour of some individuals towards politicians? Well, I think people weren't necessarily familiar with a number of the Conservative MPs who voted against their whip on Brexit, but the crosshairs were put on their back by those 
newspapers that who called them, you know, betrayers of their country and accused them of treachery. And then that is like the trigger to the social media. And I do think that But do you think we call that out enough? I mean, you know, there's this ghoulish character who everyone seems to sort of tiptoe around him. Paul Dacre, this very ang- there's an angry person. I keep inviting him, by the way, onto this, onto this programme. He hasn't taken up my invitation yet. But he seems to be, not. he's not alone, but he seems to be uh, an extremely gifted, uh, sort of angry um, uh, editor in terms of whipping up sort of anger. Do you, do you think? Do you think they need to kind of people need to think a bit carefully about the effect that it has on on folk? Well, I did suggest to Amber Rudd in the House when she was um, Home Secretary that because of the violent threats against MPs on all sides, but on her side as well, that she should call in the newspaper editors and look at the chain of causation that came from their pictures being on the front of the mm. mail, so like accused villains, of yeah. betrayal. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the actual real threats that came afterwards. Did she? No. Um, in fact, she didn't... The word Daily Mail couldn't come no. out of her no, no, mouth. No, I mean, they, no, no, no. they still are very influential, decreasingly so, um, and I think that there well, is... decreasingly so in society at large. I, mean, I, I, should, I don't know what it is. Probably only 3 4% of the overall population read a paper like that. But I found this... But I think the, there's the... a secular trend where they don't own information. They don't own yes. opinion no, but they, anymore. I'll tell you what they do at the moment, and I saw this when I was in coalition with the Conservatives. The, they, they are read... It's Particularly that newspaper is very, very widely read by Conservative Party members in their local party association. So it has a sort of disproportionate amplifying effect on how the Conservative Party... And read online, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you, you're known, and I certainly remember this uh, in our various sort of barbed and sometimes pretty aggressive exchanges across the dispatch box. You're known as a, as a uh, for better or for worse, that's for other people to judge, but um, as a real kind of team player. You know, you, you, you believe in your political tribe, your party... Um, uh, you said it just earlier, you know, it's so important that part, you know, parties and your party is sort of hangs together and so on and so forth. Do you think the kind of um, partisanship, which is sort of built into our political system, where one lot says the other lot is evil and wrong and the other lot says the other is sort of hypocritical and ghastly and so on, do you think, I, I mean, I much, by the way, and I don't gen- I genuinely mean this, is a, is a failing as much as a strength have always been pretty un-kind of partisan in these things. But do you, do you think partisanship um, and, and always sort of saying your side is better than any other side uh, is, the, is the kind of thinking that kind of exacerbates anger in politics rather than allays it? Well, I think synthetic anger is awful, where people purport to be angry at the other side when they aren't really. I mean, that is kind of nauseating. But... I think that it. I found it quite paradoxical that in terms of women's issues, that there is now younger women who I describe as daughters of the women's movement mm-hmm. turning up on the Tory benches. And I find that quite paradoxical because... For me, it was always Labour that there was a party of women in equality. But surely, you didn't, surely, you, didn't think it was, surely you didn't think it was impossible to be a Conservative and believe in well, women's empowerment? For for many years, the Conservatives were the party of the traditional family and if he was beating his wife, well, it was his responsibility to keep her in order and he was the head of the household and it was undermining of the family wage for a woman to argue to be able to earn as much as a man and childcare was undermining the role of the mother. I mean, really, but, they were no, the drag... No, I mean, I'm not a Conservative, but I don't believe all Conservatives are wife beaters. No, I mean, no, it, no, but the, but the point was, the where, the where Conservatism was in the politics was, it 
was in opposition and arguing against the women's movement. I know I was there in those TV and radio studios. But paradoxically, now, the success of the women's movement and those arguments means that actually there are younger conservative women MPs who speak like we do and sort of hang out with me in the tea room and I find, find myself very well I find it very challenging and it's, but it's why? made me why they're not they're, they're, human, well, they're human beings because, they're not, because they're not I'm, a different species yeah but but actually it is surprising to find that that movement turning up and indeed some men as well making very good feminist arguments. I nearly was in a dead faint the other day when a a conservative man made an argument about the importance of having proxy votes in Parliament for when a woman was in labour or a man's wife needed to be there when his child was born. And it was the most excellent argument. And it was from a young Tory man. So the success of the arguments that we had such a fight about decades ago I think offers the opportunity for cross-party working. If we can identify issues that we can all work together on, we can make some progress. And there are 200 women in the House of Commons. If we could be a coherent group, we could probably be the only coherent group in the House of Commons and we could really make progress. So I feel quite optimistic that cross-party working, so long as it's not just mushy, it's actually focused on achieving worthwhile ends. Can I just push you a bit? Because you, you, I mean, I'm sure you didn't intend it like this, but you made it almost sound as if you thought it, you, you were in a state of disbelief that the Conservatives could share the same values as you on anything. Well, they didn't, you see. In the past, they didn't, and they've changed. Mm. So actually, those women who've turned up in the Conservative Party as MPs are very different from the older matrons who were all very few in number and very against what we were arguing. So they are different. And sometimes you know what it's like in politics. You get your view fixed and then you carry on regardless. And it's made me rethink how I... I work across the house. And so it's made me feel quite optimistic, actually. And when I sort of chat to them and say, oh, um, how did you get um, into politics to, say, a young Tory woman MP? And she said, well, I really thought I would follow in your footsteps. And it's like, no, I wasn't supposed (laughs) to be inspiring any woman to be a Conservative MP. They were supposed to be coming on the Labour side. So I think it's an opportunity for cross-party working on a cause for progress, so which even after thirty-six been years in Parliament, you're still discovering new things about your opponents because or? things change. Mm. Well, things change, and you have to be open to seeing change, and and then going with it. Um, final thing: uh, what happens to you next? There's been talk about you perhaps standing if there's an opening as Speaker of uh, Parliament. Is that something you might want to do? Well, at the moment, I'm mother of the house, which mm. is wasn't a thing before. You can be the mother and the speaker. Well, <laughs> That's I'm what being it's titles. not a vacancy at the moment, and I, you know, I'm being mother of the house, which I find absolutely uh, fascinating, and um, inventing the role. Actually, women MPs usually last a third less long than men MPs, not because they can't stay the course, but they're likely to start older and they're likely to be in more marginal seats. That's the way it's just been in the past. So I'm quite unusual in having started young and been in a a very, you know, labour seat. Um, And so I've ended up being the longest serving woman MP. And that's 
like designated mother of the house. The longest-serving man MP is the father of the house. Well, the father of the house was always yeah, a man. Yeah, but these are, these are sort of... I mean, they're, they're slightly, as you suggested, sort of fluid, sort of informal things. In terms of the Speaker, that would it not be a, a crowning moment in many ways to have the longest-serving female MP as Speaker of the House of Commons? And would you not... I mean, there's no shame, surely, in saying you might want to do it, regardless of what happens to John Burko. Um, well, I think that when you've got somebody in their position, it's quite unappealing to be talking about who's going to take over when they're in full flow. I don't actually welcome people saying, well, when she falls off her perch, I'm going to be MP for Camberwell and Peckham. I don't encourage that sort of discussion at ah. all because I'm the full-on, one and only Member of Parliament for yes, Camberwell and Peckham. Yes, This is Soviet-style Soviet control and I do of the not, constituency. You know, I encourage discussion of all sorts, but not... Succession discussion. And, uh, so therefore, you, I have to play by the and, same. And I mean, I don't. Book. I don't know. By the time this podcast goes out, I don't know what the state of affairs will be. But d- d- when John Burko was reported to have sort of muttered "stupid woman" about Andrea Lodsom, did did you? Re- how did you? How did you respond? I'm not asking you to sort of say what you think should happen to him, but how did you respond to that? Was that just a sort of he's entitled to call her stupid? It doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman. Or do you think there was something? Um, said and done then which wouldn't have been said and done if she was not a a woman? Well, firstly, I don't necessarily believe what people are said to have said until they admit they've said it or agree they've said it. Well, I think he has said that he used the word stupid. Well, there's now a formal process, so what he did or didn't say is going to be the subject of a complaint. But I think that the, the role of the Speaker is incredibly important and is invariably not frictionless with government because government thinks that they're in the right and that they want Mm. to get it through parliament and you know it's very I mean I've been in government it's very irritating when you know that 90 days detention is a thoroughly good thing and then parliament then parliament has we stop that nonsense that illiberal nonsense parliament says uh, no it's not such a good thing and you might be in government, but you can't do it. Or when we say we absolutely can't afford, you know, this Gurkha's pension settlement, and Parliament says, oh, yes, you can. So yeah, there is a creative tension. Yeah. yeah, there's a creative tension between government and Parliament. But it is necessary and it's and it's healthy. And the Speaker has to be there to be mm. understanding what Parliament, government needs to do, but also making sure that Parliament can hold government to account. So there is a creative tension. It's never going to be frictionless. Obviously, the Leader of the House and the Speaker need to be able to work together. But what Parliament is there for is actually to stop government making mistakes, ultimately. When you're in government, I mean, you've been in government, you know... It's quite difficult to, when you've had all the discussions internally, you know, it's just so irritating when Parliament starts having a view yeah. which might differ or anyway, try and make an you alter it. excellent segue away from your ambitions as a possible future speaker, away from John Burko into the virtues and vices of government and Parliament. Well, I'm, having, which... um, I'm having the ambitions I've, you know, yeah. I've always had yeah. um, and I'm, you know, getting on with being yeah. mother of the house yeah. and I am not going Absolutely. to, as You're I say, do to sure. the speaker what I wouldn't want to be done to me and my... <clears throat> role as Campbell and Peckham MP, yeah. which is like discuss the succession. Well, whatever the future uh, brings, all the very, very best of luck. And thank you very much for joining me on Anger Management. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Anger Management with Nick Clegg. The next show will uh, be in two weeks' time. If you enjoy the show, then please do subscribe via Apple Podcasts. Just search for Anger Management with Nick Clegg. 
And if you'd like to give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, uh, that, of course, would be great. We're also on Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and all major pod- podcast providers. And if you're an Apple denier, you can simply download it at audioboom.com forward slash channel forward slash Nick Clegg. Please do follow me on Twitter at Nick underscore Clegg and let us know what you thought of this episode and, indeed, anyone else you should think, uh, you think we should have on the show. Talking of which, I keep extending an invitation to the editor of the Daily Mail. I'm sure he must surely listen to this podcast and yet every every week I wait with anticipation and then disappointment that he doesn't take up my invitation. Come on, Dacre, man up. Don't be frightened. Come and come out of you know the shadows and speak in your own voice to, to me on Anger Management with Nick Clegg. I'll give you a warm welcome. Audio production is by Sophie Black and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Anger Management with Nick Clegg is a Podmasters production.